This episode is brought to you by the American Distilling Institute's Annual Judging of Craft Spirits. If you're a distiller, either here in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world, there's still time to submit your spirits to be assessed and judged at this year's annual competition. What do I love about the ADI International Spirits Competition? Well, I love that, as a judge, I get to work side-by-side with a bunch of people who take spirits and cocktails as seriously as I do. All the judges, both from the U.S. and abroad, converge on the Bay Area and spend three full days engaged in the joyful work of analyzing distilled spirits and giving loads of extremely detailed feedback to the distillers who submit them. This is great if you're just starting out and want to get a set of expert palettes to assess the quality of your distillate in a blind, tightly controlled setting, but it's also really useful if you want to learn how your products stack up against the other bottles on the market. Head over to distilling.com or send me an email today to learn how you can submit your spirits to the American Distilling Institute's 2024 International Spirits Competition. Now, on to the show. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 278 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for tuning in to another interview episode where I track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that I can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by Aaron Goldfarb. He's a spirits and cocktail writer from New York who longtime listeners may recall from his appearance more than a hundred episodes ago to chat about his holiday themed cocktail book, Gather Around Cocktails. Well, this time, Aaron's not here to talk about eggnog. His latest book, Dusty Booze, In Search of Vintage Spirits, throws back the curtain on a bizarre, cutthroat, and intermittently dazzling corner of the spirits world where collectors try to find and drink the rarest, most coveted spirits in the world, most of which will never be produced again. It's part Indiana Jones and part Storage Wars, and the more you learn, the weirder it gets. But before we start rifling through your grandfather's liquor cabinet, let's take a brief pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is, well, it's not a cocktail at all. In fact, it's not even a beverage. It's a tall, frosty, delicious thought experiment prompted by Aaron's book. As we know, this book is all about rare and vintage spirits, and these bottles tend to come with a pretty hefty price tag associated with them. Like, think multiple hundreds of dollars on the low end, and multiple tens of thousands of dollars on the high end. And in one respect, I don't know, that's kind of fair. Virtually all dusty bottles are no longer in production, placing these spirits in the extreme long tail of the supply and demand bell curve. So my question to you, my thought experiment, is this. If you wanted to make a cocktail that was originally created using a vintage spirit, that's been out of production for decades. How important to you, how meaningful would it be to taste that drink using the original ingredient? And perhaps as a little rider on this thought experiment, how much would you pay for that privilege? A prime example of this is Trader Vic's original Mai Tai, made using Ray and Nephew 17-year-old rum. 
Currently, there are only about three bottles known to exist, one of them in the possession of Martin Kate of Smuggler's Cove fame. And my guess is that you'd probably have a hard time convincing the owners to crack one open just so you could taste a genuine original Trader Vic's Mai Tai. To understand why this rum is so valuable, we need to kind of go back in history to prohibition, which encouraged Caribbean rum producers to age their rum longer than they might have otherwise. Right? Less demand? Well, why not leave it in the barrel for an extra couple years? Nobody's, you know, banging down the door for it, so we might as well age it a little longer. So coming out of prohibition, when tiki bars really took off in popularity, there was a glut of long-aged rum on the market, making it affordable enough for mixing. Unfortunately, the original 1944 Mai Tai didn't survive long. According to Goldfarb, quote, The Mai Tai became so popular that Trader Vic burned through Rand Nephew's aged stocks, selling the cocktail faster than it could produce and age the rum. Bergeron, that's Trader Vic, would eventually be forced to swap in a 15-year-old before he started stretching that out by adding Red Heart and Karuba rum, more affordable and lightly aged Jamaican dark rums. Eventually, he began to use a dark rum from Martinique. End quote. Now, was Ray and Nephew 17-year-old so great in the original Mai Tai because it was so smooth and mellow, or because it was a fruity ester bomb? According to some rum scholars, it's kind of hard to tell, which is exactly what makes the notion of cracking one of these bottles so tantalizing. It would unlock, in an embodied, sensory manner, a truth about the Mai Tai so pure that it could change the way we think about this drink. So I ask you again, how important is it to understand what an original 1944 Mai Tai tasted like? How much would you pay for a dram from one of the scant few bottles of Ray and Nephew, 17-year-old, in existence? You can run this thought experiment for other cocktails like the Brooklyn, made using Amer Pecan, and the Vesper, made with Kaina Lillet. And I like it because it makes you grapple with big questions about identity and authenticity and value and flavor. But at the end of the day, there's still that uncrossable chasm between what once was and what's currently available. So, now that I've possibly ruined the Mai Tai for you forever, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fascinating deep dive into the world of rare and vintage spirits, some of the topics I discuss with Aaron Goldfarb include what constitutes a dusty or vintage bottle, and some of the historical forces that created the trend of hunting for them, especially in the bourbon world. Some tentative answers to the question, did it really used to taste better, featuring oak tree rings, barrel entry proof, and cedar fermentation tanks. How dusty hunters use label cues like importers, tax stamps, DSP numbers, and Julian dating to determine the true age and origin of the bottles they encounter. A romp through some of the packaging gimmicks that dominated the bourbon world in the second half of the 20th century, and a look at today's secondary market for spirits with respect to how it started and where it might be headed. Along the way, we consider the historical impact of Howard Hughes's liquor collection, salute the unwavering faith and confidence of bourbon distillers, get Aaron into bed with a sultry bottle of prephylloxera cognac, and much, much more. Dusty Booze in Search of Vintage Spirits will drop in about a month, so be sure to pre-order your copy if you got some free time on your hands and think you might uncover the next outrageously valuable bottle hiding in a storage unit or an estate sale. 
But until then, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Aaron Goldfarb. Aaron, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we had a conversation uh, back in COVID times, in fact, about one of your previous books, Gather Around Cocktails. But uh, for those who didn't get to tune into that conversation, who are you and what do you do? I am a writer and a journalist, and I've covered the drinking industry, for a lack of a better term, craft beer, whiskey, spirits, cocktails, bar culture, for nearly 20 years. I can't believe it's been that long. And I've written 12 books. Uh, I pump out a book about every 18 months or so. And this one's the the latest one. It's on vintage spirits and it's called Dusty Booze. So it's interesting that you mention that you pump out a book every 18 months because one thing that strikes me about Dusty Booze is that it's got a much different voice than some of the other books that you published. It's got a much, uh, much more... I guess, um, sort of narratively focused and character focused approach to this admittedly bizarre world. So can you just give us a a bit of a preface on what Dusty Booze is all about? And then maybe we can, you know, wade in and, and start dealing with some of these, some of these interesting characters that you've encountered along the research path for it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Dusty Booze is unusual for a lot of the booze books that are being published out there. It has no pictures. It has no recipes. It's, you know, it's 400 pages of narrative, you know, between a hardcover with a dust jacket. And uh, for whatever reason, the publishing industry doesn't seem to publish a lot of those books, which is what, what I'd like to write. Not that I disliked writing whiskey books with recipes or, you know, books with lots of pictures and great art, but, uh, you know, this is a more serious take on spirits. Not that it's not fun, of course, but it's more, you know, if you're a fan of David Grant or someone like that, I don't even think you need to be a spirits fan to enjoy the narrative, which is one man's search for Howard Hughes's uh, supposed uh, spirits collection, which he left in his office when he died in uh, 1974, I think it was. Um, So that's the overarching narrative of the book. And then throughout, you know, we look at you know, what, what are other collectors collecting in both the world of vintage bourbon, vintage rum, tequila, liqueurs, and why do these things matter? Why, why should I care about a 1960s tequila? Why should I care about a pre-prohibition bourbon? What can they teach me about how the world was like then and uh, what, what the culture of drinking was back then? And are they, in fact, worth drinking, um, which a lot of people wonder. Yeah, when and I think this is a great opportunity for us to actually like define what you mean when you say a dusty bottle because I could just be really shitty at cleaning, right? right. Um and you know, maybe the bottle on my shelf is just packaging that has been rebranded, but it's maybe, you know, maybe this this uh this bottle that perhaps looks old and decrepit doesn't actually fall into the category of spirits that you're writing about in this book. So for the completely uninitiated, somebody who's never heard of the secondary market for bourbon, somebody who's, you know, perhaps doesn't even know all that much about Howard Hughes and some of these people who are searching out these kind of Indiana Jones style uh, lost collections, what is a dusty bottle and what separates it from something that is just merely, I guess, old and uninteresting? (laughs) Yeah. And you're right. If anyone who 
you know, has bottles of booze in their house knows that they get dusty quite quick. There, There is no official term for what a dusty bottle is. And several states now have vintage spirits laws that allow for selling them. Uh, I think in Kentucky, a vintage spirit is anything that's older than a year. In other <laughs> states, it might be 20 years. Some people say a dusty spirit is only something that is made by a distillery that no longer exists or a production process that has been phased out. You know, I, I don't really try to define what defines dusty. It's kind of, you know, it when you see it, you know, when I, when I first started looking at vintage spirits, uh, someone would have said, well, of course, a 1990s wild turkey is not a vintage spirit, but you know, that's, that's, that could be 30 years old these days and gone through several different production processes since then. So yes, it is. But, you know, dusty spirits are kind of more on uh, how much do they excite you? You know, a pre-prohibition rye from Maryland might excite you more than, you know, that 2001 Maker's Mark, which would also be a vintage spirit, just not perhaps as exciting and valuable. Yeah. And I I mean, one of the one of the, I think, smart choices that you make in the book is you say, well, I'm not going to throw too many value figures at you right now because those will quickly and rapidly become outdated based on the sheer fact that, as you also know, they're not making this stuff anymore. So could you, I guess, explain maybe maybe explaining the, the, the glut of these spirits, primarily bourbon, might help give us a little bit of a historical context to understand why, especially like 10 years ago now, there was such good access to these dusty bottles and perhaps why now the game is changing and getting a little bit more difficult. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, bourbon's America's national spirit and it's what people drank until we get into, you know, the late seven, late, late 60s, early 70s, when bourbon starts being seen as kind of an old man's drink. You know, if you've watched the final seasons of Mad Men, as Don and Roger Sterling kind of start not looking like the young, sexy guys to the hippies out there and start looking like just old corporate men. And those hippies would have been drinking or smoking other stuff. Uh, clear spirits started to become hot in the 70s. Tequila, rum, vodka. Vodka became red hot. And the kind of cocktails that became hot were also ones that had those spirits, whether screwdrivers, tequila sunrises, stuff like that. So bourbon was kind of getting phased out. And I believe starting in 1971, bourbon sales go down every single year all the way up to, I think, 1999. So you have nearly 30 years where people aren't buying bourbon but they're still producing a lot of it. And I've asked people in the industry, why were you still producing so much if no one was buying it? And people in the bourbon world just have a unwavering faith that what they're producing is going to be bought by the time it's aged. You know, you can't, you can't go, well, no one's buying it now in 12 years when this spirit is 12 years old, they're going to be behaving the same. You have to have the kind of unwavering spirit that, people will buy it in those 12 years. Well, they were wrong for 30 of those years and a glut of bourbon occurred and it just lined the shelves and no one was buying it. By the 80s, a lot of this bourbon was getting sent to Japan, which had kind of fallen in love with Americana and 80s and early 90s Japan somewhat gave a lifeline to the bourbon industry. Towards the end of the 90s, America started seeing what Japan was doing, whether that was collectible bottles of bourbon. Blanton's famously gets lost, uh, launched in Japan. 
the Japanese like well-aged spirits. Uh, Julian Van Winkle was selling them a lot of well-aged spirits. And I think eventually he thought, huh, if they like well-aged spirits, maybe America would like a 23-year-old Pappy Van Winkle, a 20-year-old Pappy Van Winkle. And so that kind of higher end, rarer bourbon, more luxurious bourbon, finally got bourbon back on track in America. And eventually at a certain point in the 2000s, these newfound fans of bourbon started wondering what they'd missed in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And luckily, a lot of that stuff was still on shelves and for a quite cheap price. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating to trace almost the boom and bust nature of it because, you know, I, I think you can go even back before prohibition when there was a ton of distilleries operating in the US. That was a boom. And then we had a prohibition bust and then a boom eventually again. And now we seem to, I mean, there's almost certainly going to at some point in the future be another bust where all the bourbon that's being laid down. I think you and I both are at least vaguely in touch with the number of new distilleries that are popping up and the amount of money that's being invested into just pumping out juice and laying it down right now because there is so much allocation and shortage going on just in the bourbon world. So it's interesting to be able to kind of go back and forth in time, look at these booms and busts and try to understand what that means for these kind of culturally significant collections and bottles that you're talking about. This episode is brought to you by Direct Fire Consulting. This is my brand new venture for 2024, so I thought I'd take this opportunity to introduce you to this new project and the kinds of people I'll be partnering with as I build out the portfolio. Longtime listeners know I've been a professional spirits judge for over five years, working with the American Distilling Institute and other organizations to assess the quality of distilled spirits, both domestic and imported. I've also spent more than seven years partnering with distillers here in the Mid-Atlantic on everything from product development to staff training to special events. So if you're a distiller who's looking for a helping hand with anything short of running your stills, I can't do that for you. Or if you're interested in exploring what it takes to bring a completely new spirits brand to market, Direct Fire Consulting is here to help. Visit directfireconsulting.com or reach out to me personally to learn about all the distilled spirits consulting services I offer from sensory analysis to branding and packaging to contract distilling placement and much, much more. Now, back to the show. So, I mean, where do we go from here? I mean, should we maybe think about like some of these, some of these people who are creating these collections at a very high level because you profile a number of these individuals in the book. I wonder if that's interesting to kind of shift our attention to. Yeah. I mean, the earliest collectors, the earliest dusty hunters who were going to every off the beaten path liquor store, you know, searching flea markets and estate sales, searching eBay and Craigslist when they allowed liquor sales. Those were people that actually liked the taste of vintage spirits. So to a certain extent, if those people are left with tons of booze that the world no longer considers valuable, they're not going to be unhappy because they know how delicious it is. In recent years, you've seen collectors treating whiskey like, you know, stocks or, you know, baseball cards or comic books or whatever. To great success, uh, whiskey's gone up an extreme amount of value. I, I mentioned in my book, there's 
a guy I know who doesn't even drink and he buys about $400,000 worth of bourbon per year. We've approached close to the absolute ceiling, I think, of what rare bourbon is worth these days. It's slightly creeping back down. I don't know if it's going to crater like baseball cards did in the 80s and 90s. Because, you know, as you said, this stuff isn't being made anymore. And those 80s and 90s baseball cards were being made in the the millions. Yeah. But at a certain point, you know, I I think the market's going to cool down. The craft beer market is is having a nosedive after 30 years of of growth. And I think craft beer kind of does the playbook for what uh, bourbon's going to do because craft beer's renaissance happened a few years ahead of bourbon's. Yeah, no, I think that's accurate. And and I think one of the things I'd like to key on key in on is uh, a distinction that you just made between those collectors who appreciate the taste of vintage spirits versus those who are more interested in the, I, I guess, like what you might call the just a monetary value of an unopened bottle, right? An unadulterated, unopened artifact style bottle. So uh, in your book, you mention some of these potential uh, quality markers that might distinguish spirits that were made decades ago. Um, some of them are process-based. Some of them are a little squishier than that. So what are some of the arguments to be made for vintage booze actually being higher quality or we might call it more delicious than the stuff that's being pumped out today. What are some of those like quality markers potentially? Yeah. And you know, with bourbon, there's, there's really no exact thing that we know. Well, you know, with tequila, we know old tequila is better because they were using more mature agave. It's pretty simple and some other reasons, but with bourbon, it's kind of hard to say, why was it better? There's a few markers, as you said, you know, what was the corn, being grown of a better quality. Corn today is grown for for yield. I've heard that the barrels were of a better quality. They were using oak trees that were perhaps 180 years old, and now they're using oak trees that are 80 years old. The older a tree, the more rings, the more potential places for the liquid to go in when it you know contracts, the more flavor. Distilleries were using cedar fermentation tanks as opposed to stainless steel. Cedar creates its own sort of microflora that might add, you know, uh, signature flavors to, say, Maker's Mark and Wild uh, Wild Turkey, which used to use uh, cedar. Distilleries were not, you know, operated by computer, you know, that was operated by a man who would worked there for a long time, probably did not have a microbiology degree like a lot of the workers do today, just operated by a man who was going, okay, this seems like a good place to cut it. This seems like a good barrel to blend with this barrel. So I think you're getting kind of one man's opinion on what is good. And that man, like, you know, Jimmy Russell, Wild Turkey was often right. Entry proof is another big one. The highest entry proof you can legally put bourbon into a barrel is 125 proof in America. You put something into the barrel at a higher proof. The only thing that can burn off as it ages is uh, the alcohol. You take a spirit and water it down to say 110 proof and it's water burning off, not flavor. So a lot of people believe entry proof is a huge marker of quality. Not everyone uses 125 proof these days. Michter's famously, I think is at 110, but uh, a lot do use 125 proof just because it necessitates using less barrels and thus it saves money. 
back then, you know, they didn't care as much and they might put it in a very low entry proof, 100 proof, 105 proof. And that could be another reason why the flavor is so rich. I think it's interesting when you taste kind of pre-1990 spirits at a lower proof, at 80 or 85 proof spirit, there's a richness of mouthfeel that if you say, try to Basil Hayden's today, it just doesn't exist. An 85 proof bourbon today is very watery. And I think that's an entry proof issue. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how we're sort of simultaneously able to peg some of these production techniques to actual like qualitative outcomes. Like it, it's honestly, like, this stuff is testable and people have, you know, you can, you can run the test on your own palate or you can, you know, look at some of the research that's being done at these distilleries that like entry proof stuff, the cedar fermentation vats, the older oak, absolutely. Um, you know, there's something, there's something there, I think. Then you go back to almost like the old masters, uh, status right with the with these with these old blenders who are it's all like it kind of reminds me of like a stradivarius right <laughs> uh, only a certain number of the stradivarius violins were made he by this old master and they're still revered today for you know the high arts that just we that we know for a fact will never be replicated replicated again so i mean that's kind of where I see th this start moving from a like objective kind of process based valuation mode to more of like the, you know, hearts and minds, thoughts and feelings, squishy, um, a little bit more abstract. Uh, and I, yeah. I just, I love that, that you, you brought up that excitement is like one of the criteria for assigning value to a bottle. So I guess, I was hoping that we might look at some examples beyond bourbon, because I know that the book is is very heavily centered in bourbon. There's it's where a lot of the excitement is. But what are some of the other bottles that you've featured in the book that are also exciting that might be in a completely different spirits category? Yeah, for sure. Um, tequila is a category in vintage that not a lot of people collect, um, but I think it's quite exciting. Before, say, 1980, there was not a lot of 100% agave tequila in America. And this one man, this American, a white American man, fell in love with Mexico and 100% agave tequila. And he started importing two brands, Chinaco and El Tesoro, both of which still exist, but not necessarily in the same incarnation. So these, these Robert Denton import bottles from pre-1999 are spectacular examples of what tequila could be. 1999 is an interesting marker because it's when Jim Beam, Beam Suntory as we know it today, acquires El Tesoro and many would say, you know, kind of corporatizes the tequila. It's still considered a good product, but not as spectacular as it was when <laughs> Americans, uh, you know, from you know, Manhattan uh, high-rise skyscrapers were, were keeping their hands off of tequila. So tequila kind of, in some ways, gets ruined by Americans, uh, celebrities, of course, and the general thirst in America for tequila. Tequila is not like bourbon. We're never going to run out of corn um, and, and, and struggle to make more bourbon. Uh, kind of barrel aging is the one thing slowing down bourbon. Tequila, there is a limited amount of agave. So to over harvest that agave creates a poor tequila 
And, you know, Tovar obviously agave means there's not enough agave to make tequila. So this pre kind of 1999 era, you find some spectacular tequila that, that just doesn't really exist for the most part today. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like we're in many ways painting a picture of different types of scarcity. And that makes sense, right? We're talking about collectibles. We're talking about, even though we're not throwing around dollar figures right now, the dollar figures are predicated on supply and demand. Supply being a key aspect of that. And, you know, when whether we're talking about the oak or we're talking about the time lost practices of taking the time to use cedar as opposed to stainless steel, which you never have to replace, whether we're talking about um, the patience and the quality that comes from leaving agave in the ground longer. It, it seems like we're, we're talking about process-based decisions, but also scarcity that it would be a real difficult thing to get back to a place where we were waiting 180 years to harvest an oak tree. It would be a really difficult thing for us to get back to, you know, leaving agave plants for tequila in the ground for 15 years. Um, so, I mean, is that part of like the, the dwind, the long tail right now, uh, that's this driving price is so high for these, these dusty bottles. Yeah, to a certain extent. And you are kind of this new wave of spirits makers that are popping up today, you know, you'll see them say, you know, we make it like, you know, grandpa used to, um, especially in the tequila world with brands like Fortaleza, you're seeing them say, you know, we're, we're not a, a corporate conglomerate making tequila as fast as we can to get at you. We are making it very slow and it's going to take a while and be very limited. Um, and I think that's why it's become so popular. But yeah, if you want to taste certain examples of things, your only choice is to go back to a past era and a more vintage world when things were made more artisanally, slowly using processes and sometimes ingredients that modern society would not even allow for these days. That the, the El Tesoro distillery didn't even have electricity back, you know, for the first 70 years up until I think the early 90s. So they were making tequila. <laughs> purely without electricity, without lights. They were hand carrying, you know, agave and using their hands to make everything. And, and I think that's why it's spectacular. No one's going to do that these days unless it's, you know, part of the gimmick for why, why you should spend so much on a bottle. Right. And then to me, I mean, that what you just described made me think, wow, like that really does sound like an ancestral, like literally no, no electricity, all, you know, all manual stuff. And now these days we do, we have that virtue signal on the label as a term for, for people who are trying, trying to gesture toward that without perhaps walking the walk as much as was done decades ago. All really fascinating. I'd love to see if we could chat a little bit about like, let's say somebody who's listening is like, okay, I know about spirits. I'm reasonably compelled by some of these quality markers that Aaron has just laid out. I'd like to try my hand at maybe getting 
a hold of a couple of these dusty bottles. What are some of the some of the moves and some of the best practices for locating and validating some of these products? I know that serial numbers and DSPs are like there's there's some there's some actual like hooks that you can put in and actually do some some real research to validate some of these potential uh, finds that you might run across at estate sales or, you know, off the beaten path liquor stores. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I, I'd say the best thing if you want to try vintage spirits is is not to find full bottles, which are very expensive, but to go to, you know, some of the few dozen places in America that sell them by the poor, which might not be as expensive as you think if you go to some of these places. There's a great bar called Meat in uh, Louisville where you can try some really spectacular old bourbon for perhaps $10 a pour. So I'd say start there. One of the biggest markers, if you stumble upon an old bottle in, in uh, you know, the attic or, or grandpa's liquor cabinet is uh, what's called a tax stamp. It goes over top of the uh, cap. And those were uh, mandated up till, I believe, 1981. Uh, 1981 is also when American spirits switched to using the metric system. Uh, no one ever thinks how funny it is that, you know, we kind of hate the metric system in America, except in the spirits world where everything's metric and where we have to go, well, how many ounces is uh, 750 milliliters? So if you find something in the non-metric system, that also is before 1981. And that'd be a good marker that you found something at least you know, 40 years old, whether it's in pint size, quart size, any size that's not MLs. Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny when I occasionally I'll go to a liquor store, or I'll, I'll talk with somebody in my, my dad's generation and they'll, they'll reference like the pint or the half gallon. Yeah. I'm like half gallon. Like, what do you, what am I, what am I going out for milk right now? Uh, right. so yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to know that. And the funny, I, um, the first time I encountered something along these lines, um, was when I did a chartreuse seminar, Tales of the Cocktail. I want to say it was like 2017 or 2018. And they actually, they, they provided, a way to look at the serial number on the bottle that would give you an insight to when it was act when that bottle was actually filled. Um, so are there any other, like, is, is that something that all distilleries used to do, or is that just something that you kind of got to know to look for? Yeah. And I'm not a walking encyclopedia of, of these serial numbers and whatnot, but at least in the bourbon world, as you kind of hinted on, there's something called the DSP. Every single distillery gets issued a number. And, you know, before the last 10 years ago, all these distilleries would have been mostly in Kentucky. So you look at a bottle and you go, I wonder where this old granddad was made. Old granddad's made at Jim Beam these days. The superior old granddad was made at a distillery that no longer exists called National Distillers. Off the top of my head, I don't remember what DSP number that is, but it's easily Googleable. So if you find a, a, an old granddad bottle, you can look up what DSP it is and determine whether Jim Beam made this or National Distillers made it, and the flavor profile will radically differ. As you said, for chartreuse, uh, you can look at the uh, importer. To America. If you got an American bottle, the importers changed five or six times over the last 100 years. And at least seeing the importer, you could place a bottle in a certain, you know, 10 to 15 year era 
looking at those weird numbers, uh, which can sometimes be called Julian dating. You could perhaps figure out the date. Again, fairly easy to Google those things. And those facts are in my book. I just, uh, you know, I'm not a walking encyclopedia of, of those like, uh, but a lot of the dusty hunters are out there and, and I'm sure they're rolling their eyes at me for not, not uh, <laughs> remembering what uh, 25 uh, number code determines what year uh, short truce was made. But yeah, that, those are some of the things. Well, first of all, how dare you? Um, exactly. Second of all, I, I mean, this brings up a, a, I think one of my favorite things about the book Dusty Booze, which is the fact that you've got this weird status of somebody who's half in and half out of this. And, and there was even a transformation where at one point you were like, I was obsessed. I became, I needed, I needed to taste Howard Hughes's booze. Right. Um, so like there's, there's, it's a, it's a very dynamic book from both point of view in that sometimes you're like, you're acting as like an expert and a collector. And sometimes, sometimes you're just standing back and looking and looking at these people as if they're, as if they're aliens. And, and <laughs> because like, it's a, it's a very unique and idiosyncratic thing to do. Uh, so like, I don't know, what are your thoughts about like your relationship to all these people who are doing this really intense passion project of collecting this booze? What was that like for you and in interviewing and just being near being around them? Yeah, and I do have a collector's mentality. If you look behind me, there is a lot of alcohol, but there's, you know, I, I can rein it in to a certain level like some of these guys can't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can always you can always collect harder. You can always, you know, go to one more liquor store or spend more time on the internet. And some of the biggest finds in the book were because those people went the extra mile. You know, I kind of like to go to the extra mile when working on a story. Uh, I guess my my obsessions have, have gone that way instead. But, you know, there's there's stories in the book of people that have got a list of every single liquor store in a state and then gone to them over a year. That's a lot of work. And, and as I got into vintage spirits, I was, you know, at the start of being married, having children, I, I couldn't drive around to every liquor store on planet earth. And, and that wasn't something that necessarily appealed to me either. So if I stumbled upon a weird place, if I stumbled upon a weird bottle, I certainly would try to access it. I've always tried to taste all these interesting things, but I've never quite had the, had the drive to, to spend all day on eBay or Craigslist or going to estate sales out in the country looking, looking for this stuff. So yeah, it has given me both, a certain kind of jealousy, actually, that that some people had the the motivation and passion to do this and made massive, massive scores over the last 10 years. But at the same time, as you said, I can kind of remove myself and recognize I, I just don't have the drive uh, of collecting like some of these guys do, uh, which in many ways supersedes a family life and a love life and, and even a work life. Yeah, it's 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 interesting the the range of extremes and I mean like just the sentence uh the sentence like I'm going to taste Howard Hughes's dusty booze is like a, a fairly strange sentence to to be uttering or writing. Um so I don't want to give too much up about that that whole plot arc because it's fascinating. It's a wild ride that kind of arcs throughout the book and I I think it is it, that alone is reason enough to purchase this and and check out this strange history. But you mentioned a moment ago the option of 
bars, right? So we're th- we've been talking a lot about liquor stores and sort of like the off-premise side of dusty booze, but I'm I'm wondering if we can just take a, a couple minutes to talk about the role of bars because in the book you mention a place from where I am here in Washington D.C. Jack Rose. It had has a, one of the the largest whiskey libraries uh, on the planet. It won Tales of the Cocktails Best Bars a couple of years ago, and uh, there's also another bar that's that's open recently here in DC called the Fountain Inn that that's also that's that's run in in part by somebody who uh, who collects all these rare pours. So even just you know within a couple miles of where I am right now, there's there's a couple places that really focus on the vintage, the rare. Um, so what are what are your experiences on the on-premise side of things? Yeah, so as bars started to want to build elite whiskey collections over the last 10 years at a certain point, there's only enough Pappy to go around in, you know, Washington state or California or wherever. So certain bar owners started realizing a way they could differentiate themselves was with vintage pours, especially if they could access a national distiller's bottle of old granddad for dirt cheap. They could turn a $10 find of 1960s old granddad to, you know, $50 a pour. And as I say in the book, selling vintage spirits wasn't legal, but it wasn't necessarily illegal either. There are, I think, four states now where it is on the books 100% legal, Kentucky, North Carolina, New York, and Washington, D.C., which we, as we all know, has no laws, right? Yeah, um, a little ironic. Yeah. So those four states were kind of where vintage uh, bars first started appearing. Jack Rose uh, never advertised itself as a vintage spirits bar per se. They just had such an incredible wealth of, of spirits and had been around so long that if you're open for 15 years, eventually what you opened with is, is a vintage spirit. <laughs> um, I, I think they were somewhat decimated during um, uh, the pandemic. I know he sold a lot of bottles. You can probably speak to that better than I can, but from what I understand, he's, he's, he's back and, and well-stocked. Yeah, talk- yeah. Th- there was a sorry. Yeah, sorry for the interruption. Yeah, th- he did. There was a Bill Thomas did a uh, an auction uh, during COVID, which I think that I think that was a, a really nice way to do it too. Because you know, what are people missing? Well, access to Jack Rose, great. Buy a piece, keep it open, support them. Um, so I think I think it worked out well for them. Uh, and yeah, as you mentioned, they are they are back up and running, and they've got a couple of you know sister establishments on the same block that are doing interesting things still selling really, really nice pours and, and doing great work there. So um, they're, they're, they're very much back at it now. They, they've survived and they've come back nice and strong. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So you got, yeah. Kentucky's probably the vintage epi- epicenter these days and, and they have a flat out vintage spirits law, which encourages it. Neat is one of the better bars in Louisville. You have revival in Covington, right across the river from Cincinnati Justin's House of Bourbon in Louisville and Lexington is more of a retailer, but you can drink there as well. You know, there's lots of bars throughout Kentucky that you just stroll in and wow, they got some vintage stuff. They might not even advertise it. They've been open so long. Seattle's got a place called Cannon, which frequently wins awards more often for its cocktails, but it has such a big uh, vintage spirits list. It has to be put on an iPad. The doctor's office also in Seattle, which plays a key role in, in my book and Howard Hughes's uh, collection also has vintage spirits, uh, which kind of go outside of the realm of, of just whiskey. And a lot of these bars have, have started to go outside of just whiskey into liqueurs, rum, 
tequila and all sorts of other oddball things. Yeah. So part of um, what I enjoy about some of the vintage spirits um, and something that I actually experienced here in DC at the Fountain Inn was a couple of the gimmicks that accompanied uh, the glut, the bourbon glut, so to speak, right? So, so, you know, anybody who notices that stuff is not moving in a way that, that it should, anybody who's, you know, motivated goes, turns their brain onto marketing mode and says, well, how can we make this more attractive? How can we package this perhaps so that it'll move? And so uh, when I was working with the Fountain Inn, I was helping them a little bit with uh, some of their menu um, writing and design. And, uh, I had the chance to try one of the chess men, uh, yeah. from, from the decanters. So do you want to, do you want to maybe, uh, bring us into this weird little backwater of the, uh, of the, uh, the bourbon glut? Yeah. So in the sixties, seventies, eighties, when these distilleries couldn't sell standard bottles of bourbon, they started putting them in collectible decanters hoping people might buy them as gifts or keepsakes to keep around the house just because the actual decanter was cool. Uh, Old Crow made a gigantic chess set. Uh, what is that? 24 men on each side? 20 men on each side? I don't play yeah, chess. It's, 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 and, they're, and they're large decanters too. <laughs> right. These are, uh, you know, uh, 750s or, or whatever the size was at the time. 40 different pieces, both in black and, and white, with a literal chessboard. Collect them all. But the, this happens to be incredible liquid uh, if you get a well-preserved bottle. That's, that's, one of the, that's probably the most elite decanter from the past you could collect. But there's lots of other funny ones. Wild Turkey for 20 or 30 years had a yearly ceramic turkey they released, uh, which is great stuff. Uh, this distillery called McCormick used to put their bourbon into collectible Elvises, whether Hawaii Elvis or fat Elvis from Las Vegas or, <laughs> you know, whatever. Those, those have oddly become collectible right now more for, for this, the, uh, the uh, decanter than the quality of the liquid, but they're, you'll see them at, at vintage bars. They're, they're funny to have on the shelf. The first incarnation of Michter's, uh, which was in Pennsylvania, released a King Tut decanter, in I think it was 1978, whenever King Tut was discovered and paraded around the world, uh, um, that was to commemorate that. Um, that's more of a funny thing to look at than quality liquid, but you'll you'll see that everywhere. Um, what else? Uh, during that Japan um, phase of being in love with American bourbon, a lot of American distilleries made products to appeal to Japanese people with. A sort of Americana. There was a bottle made out of denim, a denim covered bottle. <laughs> Julian Van Winkle put some of his liquid in a collectible cowboy boot, Laredo Pass. Which, oh yeah, I've, I've seen those. Yep. Uh, which is actually deli delicious liquid, but looks so ridiculous. Not a lot of people recognize that. You'll see lots of kind of guns and six shooter type decanters. Um, for a while, uh, Stitzel Weller also was putting um, liquid into these kind of Kentucky hillbilly type characters, um, which you'll see around a lot. Um, Jim Beam was probably the biggest uh, 
maker of decanters and and they have plenty of absolutely ridiculous ones. Uh, probably my favorite is uh, Vice President Spiro Agnew decanter, which who doesn't want to have a Spiro Agnew decanter around the house with 80 proof Jim Beam in it. Uh, so pretty much yeah. anything you can dream of if you go, oh, I wonder if my favorite college sports team was ever put in a decanter in the 70s. Yes, they were. Go on eBay. You can find an empty decanter for the LSU Tigers or Notre Dame Fighting Irish or whoever you want to collect. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I feel like that has that sort of move. I mean, I, th- I think it was starting to leak back into the distilling space prior to COVID. And then COVID just k- slashed all supply lines that would allow for custom containers yeah. to be made and shipped uh, efficiently. But I, I could I could actually see that as something that's maybe ready to start happening again. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts or if you've actually seen some of this uh, occurring more, more, more than just the distilleries that buy like the bottle etchers and you allow you to customize the bottles. I think, I think we're maybe approaching some of that custom container ship again. Yeah. You know, I should mention these old decanters were leaded. So you, you put your life at risk when you try them. And I have put my life at risk many times all for the, all for the love of vintage spirits. But yeah, you're, you're kind of right. Right before the pandemic, uh, Wild Turkey released a, a kind of retro throwback decanter that was pretty cool. Um, the problem with these turkey decanters is they all have a thin turkey neck. So once you're moving the bottles, they always end up cracking. But you have uh, High Wire Distilling in Charleston released a pretty cool La Crusade, La Crusette, never know how to pronounce it, kind of jug of their Jimmy Red bourbon, which sold for quite a bit. You definitely see weird packaging in the, the Scotch world where Macallan puts their stuff in, in these beautiful crystal decanters, which are often worth more than the liquid itself. But yeah, places are just constantly looking to how they can how they can outdo themselves, how they can separate themselves. So we might see Spiro Agnew again. Yeah, I'm ho- I'm honestly I'm hoping because right, like in part of this is is that booze is meant to be fun. And uh I, I think Certainly in the research process for this book, you've crossed over that infinity moment where it's like, I'm having so much fun doing this. It has become a job, right? right. Just like, you know, sifting the, the, the sifting through of the, you know, all the online forums and the social media groups and, you know, the, just the, the, the amount of work it takes to participate in the secondary market for alcohol uh, turns it, I, you know, I, I've spoken to people. I don't personally buy bottles uh, on on any sort of secondary market because I, I I don't know that I it contributes to the overall landscape in a way that I like. Uh, but I've spoken with people who participate actively in the secondary market, and they're like almost to a person are like, yeah, man, it's a lot. I still do it. I'm still going to, I'm still going to keep doing it, but it's a lot of work and it's still very expensive. So I don't know. Do you have, as we kind of round out here and maybe think about what the future of dusty bottles looks like? I mean, do you have any thoughts on the current state of the secondary market? Well, you know, as I said, it's, I think it's kind of peaked out and going down quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if in five to 10 years, you know, you can walk in and buy Pappy Van Winkle whenever you want for say $200. I don't know. Maybe that's a pipe dream, but you got to remember 
Pappy 20 came out for the first time in 1994. We're at 30 years of Pappy Van Winkle. So if you're a guy who's been buying allocated bourbon for a long time, after a while you're going, this is the 15th straight year I've accessed a bottle of George T. Stag. It's got to get a bit boring. You got to have more George T. Stag or Pappy Van Winkle than you can ever drink. And you got to start moving to other categories or things to collect. So I think you're seeing that with a lot of people. There's always new breeds of people just getting into the industry for the first time, parsing what it all means and how to access things. But that's why I think you're seeing a lot more people look to the past and, and see what they missed, what they can learn about the past and what they can find that's even rarer than a new release of Pappy Van Winkle. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think, I, I mean, that's, that's a good point because to me, there's a little bit of doom and gloom in this, in that like, oh, we're not making any more of this stuff. It's, it's just going to become a game of diminishing returns. But I think your point is well taken in that it's like, well, we focus so hard on bourbon that we've missed a lot of this other stuff. And I think when the craze for dusty bottles really started the internet was still in a nascent enough form that you, when you went online and searched english speaking or american forums you really were just talking to people in your country whereas now we have a truly global internet and we have things like google translate and you can go on to you know a german site or a french site and start gathering information in a different way so i think i mean what do you think about the notion of 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 a uh, i guess a a more thorough, more widespread second pass through the archives to see what we can find in, in potentially places that are not Kentucky, USA. Yeah, well, any American who's gone to Europe has has perhaps walked into a liquor store and seen an old bottle of something and been rushed back to 20 years ago in America. You know, a lot of Europe doesn't care about this old stuff. I was in Rome two or three years ago and found tons of old vintage Amaro that would have sold for quite a bit here, but just on the shelves there, it was actually in the bargain bin there, believe it or not. They hadn't <laughs> sold it in so long. They were willing to get rid of it. This was Rome. This was not some some country town either. Certain places care about certain spirits. Other places don't. You know, Famously, you can still get bourbon pretty cheap in, in uh, the UK because they care more about scotch. You know, They have, have less respect for bourbon. So I know a lot of people who, who buy their bourbon from UK auction sites, UK dealers, yeah, the world's a big place and there's lots of bottles out there. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad that we were able to to reframe that for me on a, on a note of optimism, because although I don't personally plan on, you know, spending a whole lot of time and resources on hunting for Dusties myself, I think I mentioned when we were emailing, I'm about to move. I, I might find myself at estate sales looking for some furniture to have, help furnish yeah. my new place. So I want to at least be on the lookout for these things and and better, better to be optimistic uh, in the process. So I want to hit some lightning round questions here. Okay. But uh, before we before we do that, I just I, what are the details on the book? When is it launching? Um, you know, who who are you working with on the publishing side of things? Where should we be on the lookout for the the book so that we can pre-order and uh, pick up our copy when it launches? Yeah, got a copy right here. Dusty Booze, right. I love it. In, in search of vintage spirits, it's from Abrams. Uh, sold whether wherever books are sold, it's currently online for pre-order. Pre-orders are crucial for first week sales, which are crucial for making any sort of list, bestseller list and getting press. Um, so 
It's available on Kindle as a hardback with a dust jacket, as I mentioned, and an audiobook version, not read by me, unfortunately, will be oh. uh, out eventually. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't win the audition. They uh, they gave it to someone with uh, a better voice. So, did they? Was it Robert Simonson? <laughs> He's actually uh, he actually voices his current book, but no, I did yeah. not. Uh, I do not. I did not get the the gig, which also stinks because they they pay you extra for that. But uh, oh, alas. Man. Man. Well, um, I will, uh, of course, link on the show notes page to uh, the pre-order for Dusty Booze. And uh, for now, let's jump into the lightning rounds. And as we do, I want to I want to just preface that, again, you mentioned this is a 400 page book. We've just been dipping in and out to some of some of the general topics and, and making some references to this fascinating uh, narrative arc in the book. Uh, but there's a there's a lot of content in this book, so we're gonna do a quick game of um, kill, marry, fornicate, and <laughs> I just picked three three bottles that for me you know are kind of representative of like some bottles that would be like really impressive to me. So we've got pre phylloxera cognac, original navy Royal Navy rum, and a Tarragona chartreuse. So KMF. Um, so I've had old, I've had Navy rum, which is spectacular. And I've had the chartreuse also spectacular. I've, I've embarrassingly never had pre phylloxera cognac. So I guess I gotta, I gotta F that just to get a, get a little taste. Oh yeah. Um, geez. The other one is very tough. Whew. Cause I love chartreuse and I love old rum. I guess I'm going to marry chartreuse and mm. I can't believe it killed the kill the rum. That's, that's crazy. That's the problem with these games is that you all, you find yourself in, in the most making the most bizarre choices. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think we have, I think we have a prayer of some distillers going and making some rum that is of an approximate character, not to say anything of quality or value, but of an approximate character. I, th I think we can I think we can get back there, but you're right. Yeah. I, I think, I think I, I agree with that. And pre phylloxera cognac. I mean, we didn't, we didn't drop too, too many dollar values in the book, but that was phylloxera was like the 1870s. So now this is 160, 170 years old, almost. I mean, like how much could a poor pre phylloxera cognac go for these days? Well, so the, the nice thing about cognac, if you only care about tasting it is there's not a lot of famous brands. So a lot of, current American collectors don't even know what's good, myself necessarily included. So I've definitely seen 1870s bottles online for maybe a thousand bucks, which is kind of insane. Other ones I've seen for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars with 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 the bigger names and, and better provenance. It's kind of crazy I've never tasted it because because it is still somewhat accessible even for a non-moneyed person these days. But uh, yeah, you know, go to go to uh, one of the big auction sites and, and search, search pre phylloxera and, and you'll find stuff that that if you've had a few drinks at night, you might be crazy enough to to, to put a bid on. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, this is this leads us to uh, sort of the next lightning round question here, which is: Do you have 
perhaps like a unicorn bottle that you would move heaven and earth to be able to taste or uh, or obtain? I mean, let's assume that you've got the budget for it. Let's not make let's not make <laughs> money a lightning round uh, impediment here. But is there is there a unicorn bottle that you're particularly fascinated by? You know, I've been very lucky to taste most of the iconic old bourbons and rice, whether you know. Stitzel Weller from a past era, Red Hook Rye, which is, was a unicorn for a very long time, and now I, I've tasted it quite a quite a bit. Uh, so I, I'm not sure there'd be anything in the bourbon category. Um, a big one for me is the famous Ray and Nephew 17 year old, which was the basis of the Mai Tai. Um, mm. Appleton Estates kind of released a, I don't know what you'd call it, a, a modern mock up of it last year called I think it was called Legend 17, which I did try and which was good and which also sells for a ton on the secondary market. Uh, but Rand Nephew 17, there's apparently two bottles on planet Earth and both are sealed and I don't know if they'll ever be opened. So I'm not sure I'll ever taste it, but that, that would be at the top of my list. Fantastic. I Yeah, I love how much rum comes into the vintage spirits conversation. I think rum is is one of those categories that's fairly ascendant these days because especially, you know, we were talking about Europe. Europe has been doing rum far better than the US has been doing rum yeah. for decades and decades now. So I think that's just uh, something for people to uh, keep an eye out for. You know, you uh, in researching and writing this book, there's a lot of historical figures from uh, the 20th century, you know, the, the introduction is fascinating because you're just uh, you're on the phone with this character from your narrative arc, and you're just tr- you're trying to guess. He's keeping <laughs> a secret about who this who this elusive collection is about, and you're just guessing these these high profile people. So, who is somebody from that era that you were researching? You know, we can say like mid to late 20th century who if celebrity spirits brands were totally a thing back then would have absolutely in your opinion owned you know some equivalent of like a casamigos or or something like that yeah it's a fun question uh well there there is one guy who is barely talked about but i i wrote a story for vine pair a few months ago bing crosby the the famous singer and actor was responsible early on for importing Herradura to America. It wasn't considered a celebrity spirit, but he still appeared in lots of newspapers talking about it. Obviously, if this was this era, you, you got to look to the, the Rat Pack. There's no question <laughs> that Sinatra and Dean Martin would have had their own spirits. I mean, Sinatra just did free shilling for, for Jack Daniels, but uh, he would have almost certainly had, had a, a spirit, uh, in this era. Yeah, no, those are, those are great call outs. And I think I, I've, I've been trying to, uh, as we've been talking here, figure out like, because I think I'm like even further removed from this collector's craze than you are in that. Like, I don't, I mean, you can see behind me and, and even, what you can't see. I have a lot of, I've collected a lot of books, but it's not the same as booze. I don't really, and I don't, I, I, I could, I could care less about actually having the collections. And so part of me has been looking for a way in to try and understand exactly what's giving people the value and the pleasure. And I, I mean, it seems like it must be that connection with history 
to a certain extent. So maybe as we round this out, I'll throw that over to you. I mean, like, do you think that whether it's uh, the ability to experience what would have gone into the original Mai Tai or, um, you know, knowing some of these like historical, like little touch points, like uh, this, this cognac was around at the same time as Thomas Jefferson, like, like, is, is that, is that really the heart of what's driving some of this? Well, you know, the, the one vintage thing I somewhat collect earnestly is birth year bottles, um, mm. which for me is 1979, which is a while ago, but not so long ago that the prices are insane. And, you know, I don't know why I collect them. I like, you know, maybe as I say in the book, I'm an egotist and I like to see 1979 on a bottle. <laughs> But, you know, my birthday's coming up in a few weeks and I'll open something from 1979 and you can kind of feel the power of, wow, this was being put in this bottle, probably by people who might be dead by now, you know, around the same time I was being born. And now it's here with me and two people, you know, a person in a bottle from 1979 are having communion together. Um, I don't know. You, you kind of have to get a little dreamy when you start thinking about vintage spirits and, and why they matter. Now, to some people, they might say, that's ridiculous. Who cares? I'd rather just have something good and, and tasty from today than something ridiculous that just so happens to have been created the same time I was. If you don't feel that, that the, the power of that, then I'm never going to be able to talk you into it. But you know, if that, that sounds appealing or special to you, I think you get why vintage spirits have such power. I couldn't think of a better way to round out this conversation. Uh, I do agree with you having enjoyed your book that, they do seem to have this power. And I think that you just gave a, a pretty solid encapsulation of, of at least part of where that power is derived from. So um, Aaron, one more time, the book title and um, you know, where folks can go and grab it. Yeah. Dusty booze and search, search of vintage spirits from Abrams, March 5th. Uh, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, every place you can, just about buy books. Uh, go go harass your local independent bookstore and ask why they don't have it. Uh, maybe I'll come out and sign it for you. Hopefully, uh, yeah. I'll be doing a few book events throughout the uh, country. Uh, so uh, follow me on social media and see where those are going to be. Fantastic. Well, and I, I can imagine that having the copy be signed would be you know increase the value a little bit. Right. Yeah. Just like vintage yep. spirits. Yeah. Just like vintage spirits. Aaron, thanks so much for being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Thank you so much. It was fun. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you can do to help the show. One would be to rate and review this program anywhere you enjoy listening to podcasts, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The more ratings and reviews we have, the easier it will be for other like-minded flavor nerds to enjoy the content that I produce. You can also follow the Modern Bar Cart YouTube channel where I post video clips from the podcast and beyond, and you can join our growing Discord community which is where our listeners submit questions for upcoming guests and chat about all kinds of fun spirits and cocktail shenanigans. It's also where I share fun perks and discounts that are too exclusive to blast out on the airwaves. 
to join our community Discord server or get in touch with me for any other reason, all you need to do is drop me a line by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and boozy adventures are just beginning. So remember, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Dusty Booze Insights, courtesy of Aaron Goldfarb, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2024.